Welcome to the Faith Church Podcast, where every week we post sermons from our lead pastor, Rick Shule, and guest preachers, as well as other content from church members and staff. We hope you hear something that resonates with your soul this week. This summer we are in a sermon series called uh, Proof That God Exists kind of. And over these last several weeks, we've been taking a look at all of the classical proofs for God's existence. People that are smarter than us, people, some of the best thinkers in Western society have come up with these arguments that prove God's existence. And yet, somehow they're still not entirely convincing. Yet somehow, people still don't believe in God. Can you imagine that? Hmm. And I think it's because We've made this mistake that our belief sets are the same thing as our faith. And so during this sermon series, I've been trying to distinguish what faith is from our philosophies and our sets of beliefs. My overarching metaphor here has been the tomato plant, which I love. I think it's so cute. So let's review it again. The, our faith is like a tomato plant. It is a living thing in us. It is the thing that is yearning for gratitude. It's what, it's what um, uh, Jane Fonda said is a reverence that's humming inside of her. Or Stephen Colbert said, it's a need to be grateful. Our faith is this thing that longs to connect and to be grateful, to be oriented to something that is outside of us. The faith is a living thing in us. The soil is our attitude. Attitudes are positive or negative feelings towards an object. And our attitudes are shaped by our emotions, by our behaviors, and by our education. And so our attitudes or presuppositions are likely positive or negative towards God, depending on emotional things that have happened in our past that affect our emotions, our regular practices, and our own education. We talked about how we can cultivate our attitudes, that we can build up our attitudes and shape our attitudes, and at the very least, we must do no harm to our neighbor's attitudes, right? We must do no harm to our neighbor's soil. Um, We have spiritual experiences with God. Our our tomato plant isn't going to grow unless it gets some sun and some water. So these spiritual experiences are the sun and the water that our faith needs to grow. And we can kind of think of this as, um, yeah, spiritual experiences, or we just even call it love. When we experience love, we experience, I think, the divine. The New Testament says that God is love. We need sunlight and water for our faith to grow. We need experiences with God for our faith to grow. But we also have uh, delivery systems for water. We call these spiritual technologies, or it's the watering can in this analogy. Humans have always used spiritual technologies to connect with God, usually in the forms of art and music and scripture. These are vehicles that can help us connect with God. And finally, our philosophies, our belief sets, our theologies, our proofs for God's existence, these are the tomato cages that give a little bit of structure so that our little plant, so that our faith can grow. The tomato cages are not the same thing as the faith. As good as a tomato cage is, 
it will never produce a tomato, right? Just like these arguments for God's existence, they will never produce a love and a trust for God. They'll help it. They'll help support your faith, but they aren't the substitute for faith. That's why these proofs for God's existence aren't to be used to argue people into the faith. People are not argued into the faith. And if you're out there arguing with people, telling them that, you know, we're right and they're wrong, we're only doing damage to their soil, to be honest, to be honest. Instead, when people have this little plant, this little seed, this little desire to connect with God, how can we help nurture that and provide a little bit of structure if people want it? That's what these arguments are. They're structure for those who have this faith but want to understand, is it reasonable? Because a lot of times the world says that faith is totally irrational or that we're silly for even believing. Well, these arguments for God's existence tell us that actually it's okay. It is reasonable. We can be faithful people and still be good thinkers. Praise God, right? Over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about a couple of these. The first one is an argument from pure reason. Uh, we call it the ontological proof. It comes from Anselm and Descartes. It says that God, by definition, must exist because God essentially is the ground of existence. God is the ground of being, as Paul Tillich would say. God, in God's nature, must exist because that's who God is. If that didn't make sense to you, go back a couple of weeks and watch the service again. Last week, we talked about um, the cosmological proof for God's existence, an argument from observation. And this is championed by Thomas Aquinas, who says, when I look at the world, it looks like stuff comes from stuff. It looks like everything is caused by something else, but this can't go on forever, so there must be something at the very beginning. And even so, our modern sciences also point to a beginning of all things, because Everything seems to be expanding, so it must have started together in one place in one time. And what is at the beginning? For Aquinas and many Christians, we say whatever that is, we call that God. Now, those arguments have also had some holes poked in them, notably by philosophers like Bertrand Russell and David Hume, who say when you argue for an existence of God, you want there to be a God. And so you're messing with things a little bit. Your presuppositions are getting in the way. And so you're trying to prove God beyond a shadow of a doubt, but really you are just articulating what you hope to be the case, which is a pretty good argument. Immanuel Kant and William Paley, who we'll talk about today, tend to agree and say, you cannot prove God beyond a shadow of a doubt. There will always be some holes in the argument. However, it seems reasonable. It seems reasonable that a God exists. We're going to start with the teleological argument. The teleological argument says that it is reasonable to assume that an object with complexity and purpose has a cre creator to give it such. William Paley is the thinker on this in his book, Natural Theology. He recounts this idea. I don't know if he really did this or not, but he tells the story. He is out in the woods, and he saw a rock, a rock just sitting there. And he started to think to himself, well, where'd this rock come from? And he could imagine a, a million ways this rock ended up at the bottom of this hill. 
There could have been a wind. There could have been an animal. There could have been a flood. There could have been all these different natural causes that would have rolled this rock from the top of the hill to the bottom of the hill. And then he goes a little bit further into the forest and he finds a watch. He opens up the watch. He pulls it open, sees all the gears and see all, sees all the complexity and all the wonder. And there's nothing in the woods like this watch. And he says, if I find a watch like that, then it's reasonable to assume that there was a watchmaker. William Paley says, our world, our universe is like that watch. It has complexity, it has order, and order does not come out of chaos, no matter how much time you get it. give it. Chaos and chance and randomness only tends towards more chaos, chance, and randomness. It never tends to order. Let me put it this way. If I took a glass of milk and a glass of coffee, or a cup of coffee, and I poured them together and I stirred them together, how long would I have to stir before that milk and coffee ordered themselves again separately? No amount of time, right? Adding more chaos and randomness will never create order. For William Paley, he says, a million monkeys at a million typewriters for a million years will in fact never produce Shakespeare's Hamlet. That's not how randomness and chance works. We tend to think that given time, chance and randomness and chaos will produce all sorts of different possibilities. But why do we have that thought? Paley says that that's absurd. Chaos only leads to more chaos and randomness. We don't have any examples of chaos and randomness and chance over time producing something as com complex as a watch, something as complex as even a straight line or a right angle. We don't see that in chaos and in nature. And yet, here we are in a world with straight lines, angles, watches, order, complexity. If we say that the world, the universe created, started out of chaos and randomness, and it's on its way to chaos and randomness, how is it right here in the middle? We have complexity and order. It doesn't make sense. It's a mystery. It's a missing puzzle piece in our cosmology, in our view of the world. And Paley says this isn't a knockout, uh, knockdown, dragout argument for the God's existence, but God, the idea of God, fits into that missing puzzle piece. If we can allow an idea for God, then we can have an idea for order and complexity. And for Paley, it seems that is the case. Here we are existing with order and complexity. There seems to be a designer. It doesn't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt, but this idea of God fits the missing puzzle piece. This idea of God answers the mystery. That's one way that theologians and philosophers have looked at mystery as an argument for God's existence. Immanuel Kant, who's kind of the father of the Enlightenment, 
um, says, nah, I don't like any of that stuff. <laughs> I don't like any of the arguments for God's existence. He agrees with Hume that these things don't add up. But for Kant, there's another mystery that tends to grab him, and he can't quite understand this mystery except for a notion of God. For Kant, morality is a mystery. And so the moral argument says that morality is a duty to overall well-being, the sumum bonum, overall well-being, all things made right, a world where there's no hunger, thirst, pain, right? Sometimes I call it the new creation, sometimes I call it the kingdom of God. Morality is this duty to overall well-being, sunum bonum, even over and against personal advantages. He says, what else in the world, what else in the world, what other animal or creature would act against their own evolutionary advantages or personal gains for the sake of others, the whole? It doesn't make sense. And why do we think it's noble and just to care for another, even at our own personal sacrifice, or even what we call the ultimate sacrifice? Why would we ever think it's a good thing to sacrifice ultimately, unless we believe in some better world for all things, even better than my own life? Where would this idea ever come from? For Kant, this is another missing piece in our understanding of the world. Why? How did this come about? Could this be explained by natural evolution or chance? What other animal in the world hears the cries of help and runs towards the danger, right? And for us, we think it's noble and just to do so. C.S. Lewis picks up the same argument and he said, C.S. Lewis was an atheist and wrote on atheism and anti and against Christian theologies. And he writes that he couldn't believe in a God because of so much injustice and evil in this world. But then he pauses and says, but where did I get this idea of just and unjust? Where did I get this idea of a world made right, of an ultimate good? even over against my own personal gains. This seems to be a mystery. For Immanuel Kant, he says the only thing that makes this make sense is an ultimate supreme being who desires good for all things. And so he admits this is not a knockdown, drag out argument for God's existence, but he says there is a mystery here of morality. Why do we all assume this sumum bonum? And why would we, why is it that we think people are less moral when they act selfishly, right? That doesn't make sense. They're just taking care of themselves over and against other people. And we say, that's bad. Why? Why do we think that's bad? For Kant and for Lewis, they say, there's a mystery of morality here. There's a missing piece doesn't prove that God exists, but the idea of God fits this missing puzzle piece. So for them, this is enough for them to say that faith is reasonable. Faith is reasonable, which is the goal of all these arguments. 
It's not to prove to non-believers that they must have faith, right? That's not the goal. But the goal is for us as thinking people who have this yearning for God in us to say, help me think better about God. How can it make sense that God exists? And so they come up with these different arguments. These are the tomato cages. They're not the tomato plant themselves. When I first introduced this idea of tomato uh, plants and tomato cages, um, one of y'all came up to me after the service and said, you know, Pastor Rick, um, not every tomato plant needs the same tomato cage. And sometimes as tomato cages grow, or as tomatoes grow, tomato cages need to be changed out from time to time. I love that idea. Because if we are growing in faith, then the structures that we use to hold up our faith, they also need to be changed out from time to time. It's almost like we need a, a rummage sale sometimes, a rummage sale for our beliefs, right? I don't know what your garage looks like, but uh, our garage kind of looks like we just moved in still. We've been here for a year. But it's because when we moved homes, um, we found that we had stuff that doesn't fit our new home. And so we've been holding on to it. We don't know what we're going to do with it. Sometimes our faith is the same way. As we grow in our faith, we sometimes have ideas and beliefs we just don't really know what to do with. They don't really fit in our new home, but we're not quite ready to get rid of them yet. So we just kind of sit them in the garage. But sometimes we need to go through those things that we used to believe and say, thank you for holding up my faith when I needed it, but now it's time to let you go. Same thing with our tomato cages, right? Thank you for holding up my faith when I needed it. But now it's time to go. And now it's time to bring in a new tomato cage. So I hope that some of these ideas for God's existence can help you, can provide some structure to your faith. But I want you to be able to pick them up and move them if, they, if they're no good for you anymore. Maybe the ontological proof for God's existence, the proof from pure concept of definition of who God is, like, whew, Maybe that just kind of gets your gears moving. I don't know if that's you. Uh, wave a hand, say amen, hallelujah, or whatever. But <laughs> maybe that's you. Maybe this is what I need to believe that God exists. Maybe, maybe it's the cosmological proof from Aquinas that says at the beginning there must be something. And that feels right and true to you and makes you feel like, yes, my faith is rational. Maybe it's the argument that uh, Paley had, the watchmaker argument, that there seems to be complexity and order here, and I don't know where it came from, and so God fits the bill best. Maybe it's the moral argument that your faith can hang on a little bit more. I don't know what it is, but I want to make sure that we distinguish our faith from these faith arguments, these belief sets because the belief sets need to be changed out from time to time. This is what we call deconstruction. If you've heard that term, as people are going through deconstruction, they're deconstructing certain tomato cages that need to go out so that faith can flourish and grow with some other tomato cages. I hope that some of these arguments and some of these beliefs have helped give some structure 
to your faith. And um, to be honest, none of these arguments really do it for me. I see the holes in all of them. And to some extent, I say, okay, yeah, leaky buckets, when you stack them on top of each other, they start to hold a little bit of water. So I kind of like that idea. But to be honest, none of these are like my tomato cage. The ideas about God that I think really give some structure to my faith, I'm gonna tell you about next week. So you have to come back <laughs> for that one. And we'll wrap this whole thing up next week, all right. A couple of questions before we end our time together. The first question as we continue this conversation is, what are the argu arguments for God's existence that resonate with you? As we've gone through these over the last couple of weeks, is there anything that says, whew, I feel that one. That one makes sense to me. That one is something I can hang my hat on for a little while. What arguments are there for you? Secondly, and this is so important, how can we be resolute in our faith and flexible in our thinking? How can we be resolute in our faith and flexible in our thinking. For all the problems that the United Methodist Church has and the tradition that we come out of, this is one gift that we bring to Christianity and to the world. We believe that we can be faithful followers of Christ and disagree with each other. We believe that we can think differently from each other. You can disagree with me and I'll still believe that you're a Christian if you'll still believe that I'm a Christian, <laughs> right? John Wesley was the one, the founder of Methodism. He was the one that coined the phrase, think and let think. And let think. He said, though we may not think alike, may we not love alike. I hope that this analogy of the tomato plant and the tomato cages helps us distinguish our faith from our belief sets and know that we can change out our thinking while remaining totally faithful and committed to God. How can we be resolute in our faith and flexible in our thinking? And then the final question is um, in the overarching analogy. What do you think the fruit is of all this as we keep talking? What is the fruit of this faith? Thank you for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. If you would like to find out more about Faith United Methodist Church in Issaquah, Washington, visit our website at www.faithunited.org or call the church office at 425-392-0123. Have a great week.